Welcome to the Look Far podcast, Voices from the Wild. Join Look Far Conservation as we talk to conservation leaders from around the world about their work, their life, the challenges they face, and the successes they've had. Most people, they're in Yosemite to be enlightened. They're there to, to put their burdens by the side of the river, to rest, to recuperate. And that, what that means is that they're all the same in that regard. They're, they're all human beings. They're all part of the same family. Welcome back to the Look Far podcast. This week, really excited to have Shelton Johnson as our guest. Shelton Johnson is a renowned park ranger with the National Park Service stationed in Yosemite. And here to help me introduce him is former Look Far podcast guest and executive director of the National Park Trust, Grace Lee. Grace, we've got Shelton. Yeah, that's wonderful. And thank you for inviting me back to help introduce him. Well, talking about national parks, public lands, and all the issues and opportunities that they bring up has been something that I've really wanted to focus on with this podcast in sharing and, and raising awareness about what's going on. Shelton, as a, sort of a pioneer as an African-American in the Park Service, really represents such a, a wonderful example of leadership on social issues, environmental issues, in connecting people to parks that might otherwise not get the opportunity. And of course, that's something that the National Park Trust uh, that you run um, does such a good job at. Yeah, he is a wonderful role model for the students that we serve because they look at him and they say to themselves, wow, that could be me, which is really powerful. Absolutely. And of course, Shelton's a little bit of a rock star, too. What was your uh, recollection in seeing him on the Ken Burns National Parks uh, documentary series? Yeah, we. Um, that was the first time we got connected to Shelton was when he was... Um, became a celebrity uh, during the uh, 2009 PBS series that Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan created. And actually, we honored uh, Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan with our first ever American Park Experience Award. And we learned um, through some behind the scenes conversations that we had with Ken Burns that he was planning just to have Shelton be, you know, like kind of a small soundbite in his series, but then after he got to know him and interview him, he realized, oh my goodness, this gentleman has to have a much bigger role in this documentary because you will hear very soon, he is an amazing storyteller. There's no one who tells stories better than Shelton. Absolutely. It, it's actually hard to uh, interview him in that I felt like I was stumbling over my words and making all these sort of inarticulate grunting noises compared to just this you know, beautiful flow of language, ideas, images, words, and really important points. Just fantastic to, to have him on. And I'm really excited for folks to, to hear about it. And you know, his, his reputation also precedes him um, uh, elsewhere. I mean, I think he took Oprah and Gail camping uh, by the Merced River, uh, and he, um, I think, twice very prominently spoke with uh, President Obama about you know diversity issues in the National Park Service and national parks and public lands. So, just an extraordinary messenger. Such an honor to to have here, and obviously near and dear to both our hearts. You know, to do this in the setting of, of national parks. Yeah, I remember in two thousand and nine, which was the first year when we launched our Buddy Bison School Program, which now is closing in on over 80 schools that we support. But back in that first year, one of our pilot schools that we still support today is St. Ignatius Loyola Academy, which is in Baltimore. And I wanted to figure out a way to connect these young men who are all African-American. They live at the poverty level in Baltimore. And I wanted to find a way to connect them to parks um, not only in their own community, but you know, across the country. And when I met Shelton, when I had the opportunity to meet Shelton, I realized, oh, this is the connection. And so I arranged to have a Skype interview. I don't know if anybody does Skype now, but back then and back then we used Skype. And I had a Skype interview scheduled between Shelton at his national park in the West and these boys 
in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And I have to tell you, it was amazing. The whole experience just blew my socks off. And just like this podcast and what you learned, I really didn't know what to expect. But once Shelton started talking to the boys and they started asking him questions, it was just a very powerful experience for them and for me. And so since then, he has been you know, a terrific advocate of, of sharing these important historical stories and experiences with, with children across the country, not just at Yosemite. Yeah, and Grace, I'm so glad you could come back and, and help me in introducing Shelton, given all the extraordinary work the National Park Trust does in supportive parks, in connecting kids, particularly underprivileged kids, to parks. Shelton's life and work connects to that so well and, and enhances that. So it's neat to sort of bring everyone together. And, and of course, um, for those uh, who might remember, Grace was uh, episode three, I believe, of the Look Far podcast and still still available and a terrific discussion and uh, pairs well with, uh, with this upcoming uh, chat with, with Shelton. And um, for those listening, you know, there's, there's more to Shelton than can be squeezed onto a podcast. If you haven't seen the Ken Burns uh, documentary about parks, um, I would highly recommend it. There's other terrific uh, media out there on YouTube. I think Outside Magazine had a great profile of Shelton a few years ago. Uh, his work with the Buffalo Soldiers in particular, which we didn't get into quite as much because that's so well described and, and explored elsewhere, uh, is for any student of history, just absolutely fascinating. So lots more than, than we could capture, but hopefully what we did capture will, uh, will, will still be good. And Grace, you know, again, thanks for, thanks for coming and maybe, uh, down the line, we can do a uh, joint uh, episode, you and Shelton, uh, somewhere outside in some beautiful corner of Yosemite. That sounds like fun, and I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Thank you for inviting me, Scott. Thanks so much, Grace, and thanks for all you do for our national parks. All right, let's give it a spin. Welcome to the Look Far podcast. I am very, very excited to have as our guest today, Shelton Johnson of the National Park Service at Yosemite National Park. Shelton, thanks so much for making time for us. Well, thank you, Scott. It's a, it's a pleasure being here, being on this program, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, you know, Shelton, uh, I thought we could just dive right in. And, you know, what I wanted to start with was this notion that, you know, our national parks are conspicuous for their beauty. You know, they're visually stunning. And one need only look upon many of our parks to understand a good part of their meaning. But in your life, your career, you know, you've, you've found and really sort of championed this idea that there's a lot more to parks than their looks. There's more than uh, their geology and their ecology. You know, many are places with hidden stories, uh, forgotten or, or overlooked histories. And your work as a park ranger has, I think more than, than anyone else, sought to uncover some of those hidden stories and bring them to light. And, you know, those stories are significant, not just because they're, they're hidden, but because of what they revealed about how national parks represent the United States of America, telling some of the story of our country. So this is kind of a long and roundabout way of asking you to tell us about the Buffalo Soldiers. Now, I, I know there's so much we could talk about here. I wanted to ask if we could focus on two things. First, how you first discovered the history of the of the Buffalo Soldiers, and second, the and as a former volunteer park ranger from my my college days back in the '90s in the Badlands, the formative role that the Buffalo Soldiers played in creating some pretty fundamental infrastructure of our parks: the entrance stations, the hats, the trails, uh, the arboretums, you know, museums, and, and so forth. I'm wondering if we could start this conversation there. Right. Well, when I was a kid, I, I remember. I remember being a kid. I'm not so old that I don't remember being a kid. And I remember there were a couple of episodes of a, of a TV show called High Chaparral. I remember, I think it was Yafit Koto was in it. And it was an episode that talked about Buffalo Soldiers. And I, and I kind of remembered that or remember that. And then I also remember a great Western by John Ford that had uh, as a star Woody Strode. I mean, he, in my own mind, was it was called Sergeant Rutledge. And he played a Buffalo Soldier. So, you know, when you... When you love Westerns and you're growing up in Detroit, which looks very, it does not really resemble the West. But at one time, Michigan 
Michigan was part of the Western frontier. Detroit was a, a French colony established in, in the New World. Uh, so Detroit is a French word. Um, so, but you didn't feel necessarily connected culturally, emotionally, spiritually to what you were seeing on television when you watched the Western. But I, I knew that at some point in the distant past, I was part of that somehow. And so television was a window, a, a means of transport to exotic places. And when you grow up in the inner city, you really are hungry for the exotic, hungry for something a little bit different and something that really sparks the imagination. I mean, all kids, childhood to great degree is an experience or should be an experience of wonder, of astonishment. You want to, you're always thinking, how did this come to pass? How did this come into being? And I was no different than any of those other kids. But luckily I had television, the view across. And I remember watching uh, High Chaparral and hearing about the Buffalo Soldiers and watching Woody Strode portraying Sergeant Rutledge. And I was just entranced. You know, by that sandstone country in the, in the American Southwest, I didn't know that I would ever see it. But it's just that those stories for me existed in a place far, far away from where I was occupying. But I wanted to visit them. And that seed of wanting to visit places that were beyond the horizon was planted by my parents. So to get to the point, I'm a military kid. You know, I grew up in Germany and England, um, but I was born in Detroit and raised in Detroit. But unlike my classmates, uh, once we returned to Detroit after uh, being away for over 10 years, uh, I had memories of being in London, England, when the Beatles were just getting big. I had a memory of why the Buckingham Palace guard would not smile at me when I was tugging at his, trying to get his attention, you know. Uh, I have memories of being in Bavaria when I was five years old. I visited Berchtesgaden before it became a national park. I remember strolling through the, the, the Schwarzwald, the Black Forest, you know, with my parents, because uh, my dad was stationed in a little town called Kontwig. And to get to the point of all of this is that there was a family trip. How much can change in your life because of one family trip? But there was a family trip to Berchtesgaden, high in the Bavarian Alps, not too far from Austria. And I was standing at the edge of the world at a railing, looking down at the shadows of clouds. I mean, the shadows cast by the clouds as the sunlight went through them. And then I could look up and I could see these banners of snow unfurling from the peaks around me in the wind. And the wind was so hard and the wind was so cold. The only thing that kept me frozen to the ground were the hands of my parents, which were warmth. The only warmth in that world was the warmth of the hands of my parents. All else was cold, all else was ice. And I was never, never felt more alive in my life than I did in that moment. I was frightened because I would look down and I could see thousands of feet of expanse beneath me and the shadows of the clouds beneath that expanse. And I was scared, but, the, but my parents were holding my hands and anything can happen in the world. But if you're holding your parents' hands, there's a sense of security and safety. And so what I'm saying is when you have an experience where you're feeling this exhilaration and you're feeling the sense of a literally of uplift, you're up at the edge of the sky, above the edge of the earth, and your parents are the, are the anchor keeping you in place, you don't forget that. And I never forgot that moment. And so when we moved, eventually moved back, we moved from Germany to England to uh, uh, Kansas City and then back to Detroit. And I was in Detroit right after um, the, the assassination of Martin Luther King. So I was there in 1968. I was 10 years old, but I was born in Detroit in Henry Ford Hospital. But in between, there's California, there's Germany, there's England with the Beatles and there's Kansas City. It's just a, a military kid. That's what separated me from my from my uh, classmates. My classmates were born and raised in Detroit as well, but they hadn't left Detroit. They had been there the whole time. But I was the one that knew what it felt like to be in such an environment. And that's what made the difference. And that is what I attribute to why we're having this conversation right now. Although the real reason why we're having this conversation is that you invited me <laughs> on your show. But that's that's really it. And that's why I always point to when I when I speak to young people, and I speak to parents, that's what's so important about a childhood um, that is replete with wonder as opposed to bereft of wonder. And when you grow up in the inner city, in inner city America, urban America is very likely or even highly likely that you will have a, a childhood that may, that may be, uh, where there may be a shortage of that sense of wonder or wonderment. And and I think personally that that is a terrible thing to, to have a childhood where 
you your 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 senses are not challenged. You're seeing things that you couldn't imagine that you would see. You're hearing things you couldn't imagine or dream that you would hear, and you're feeling things that you never expected to feel. And that's what the what the experience is like when you're in the mountains, when you're in the prairie, when you're in the grasslands, when you're in a national park, is that you you have that experience of wonder. That's why they call them the wonder years. You know, it's a, that experience of wonder. So what happens when the wonder years are fearful years? When there are years where you're thinking of trauma, when you're thinking of, it, the, are the bills going to, you're not thinking about the bills getting paid, but your parents are. You're thinking about why you didn't get that bike for Christmas, because it wasn't the money to get you that bike for Christmas. You know, you're thinking about, is someone going to try to beat you up on the way to school or on the way home from school? Instead of thinking of how blue the sky is, how warm the wind feels against your face, what a, what a blessing it is to be on this earth. I mean, that's what you should be thinking of. And the fact that if you're a kid, everything you're saying it's completely new. And there's wonder in that in and of itself. I read somewhere you described your job as, you know, you facilitate astonishment and that you get paid in gasps. And I liked that because the kinds of, of kids you're talking about, the ones who don't very easily or very readily have those kinds of opportunities. Um, you know, as, as you may know, you know, I serve on the board of trustees of the National Park Trust. And one of, uh, in fact, one of the podcast's early guests was uh, Grace Lee, the Park Trust's executive director. A big part of the Park Trust mission is to connect kids to parks, particularly kids in African-American, Hispanic-American, Asian-American communities, and particularly disadvantaged kids within those communities who might otherwise you know, lack access to national parks and other outdoor areas. And I, it was, what you're saying really resonates powerfully with me because to grow up and to not have those kinds of connections, you know, to not have that astonishment so facilitated uh, and to not get the chance to gasp. Um, you know, you don't need to really, uh, although there's a lot you could interpret about a park, sometimes it's just walk someone up to an overview or an overlook and stand there quietly. And that can, that can do a lot right there. It can do a lot and it can change your life. I mean, I'll never forget this young man who was visiting Yosemite for the first time. We have a program called WildLink. And WildLink literally creates a bridge where these inner city kids that could be African-American, Asian-American, Latino, Latina, they, they, they've never had an experience of being in the wild, being in the mountains. And this one kid, he was African-American and he was, he was with the group, but then he sort of broke away from the group because he saw something in front of him that he was not expecting to see. And uh, the rest of the group continued on to the base of Lower Yosemite Fall, which is part of Yosemite Falls, the fifth highest waterfalls in the world, the highest waterfalls in North America. And uh, everything in his life up to that point did not set him up to see what he was seeing, did not set him up to feel what he was feeling, did, certainly did not set him up to think what he was thinking. And it was setting a fire to, uh, to his imagination that, he, that had never happened before. He was challenged in ways with the beauty of what he was saying in ways that he had never been challenged before. And so I turned around while everyone else was up there at the falls because you know the whole big thing is you walk up to Lower Yosemite Fall in the spring, you're on the bridge and there's this, there's a constancy of a wind that's blowing over the bridge that's bringing the spray of the fall with it and all that water that's blowing across that bridge and this wind that never stops in the springtime after a good winter snowpack. You can't breathe. There's so much water, and the kids are holding under the railing. They're just going ah, ah, like that, and, it was just, and they're just laughing and having a great time. And the air is sparkling with the light flowing through it. And that's where they were. He was he he was behind them, just looking at it. And I went back and I asked him if everything was okay. And he didn't even look at me. He just said, "Yeah, it, it's fine. I just had no idea such beauty existed." Hmm. That's what he said. And, and there's a perception that these inner city kids have are least likely to have a, a, a profound connection to what they're experiencing in a national park. And the irony of all of that is that the kids that are most likely to have such a profound experience are those kids who haven't had that experience at all, who have not even imagined having an experience like that. And, and, and people have not pointed out to them that most of like the Star Wars films, most of them were filmed in national parks. You know, so it's like, why do I feel like I'm in Tatooine? Well, it's Death Valley. Why do I feel like I'm in this place? Well, it's it is it's it's this it's this national park. So that's what's powerful about it is to see the the looks on the faces of young people who've never even imagined that places like a Yosemite or the Grand Canyon even exist. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, so I'm a fellow Midwesterner. I grew up in the Chicago area and I can remember when I was in high school, we were volunteering with a group of kids from the West side of Chicago. And as you know, on the East side of Chicago is Lake Michigan. And these were kids that lived a couple of blocks, maybe a little bit more, but not far. And they'd never seen Lake Michigan. They'd been in their neighborhoods. And so we went down to the beach and we did a bunch of stuff there. And it was so simple. You know, it's a five to seven minute drive or whatever it was. And, you know, you didn't, I mean, although obviously going to Grand Canyon or Yosemite or Glacier or whatever would have been awesome. Turns out you can just go down the street and stand on the shores of Lake Michigan and you can have that same kind of wonderment. And it's remarkable just how important that is and how it can just kind of slip through the cracks sometimes without affirmative efforts to go out and, you know, sort of engineer those kinds of experiences. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's ironic that we refer to them as the Great Lakes, but really when you think about it, it's more like an inland sea than a, than a, than a really large lake. And, uh, and, and we have a corollary right here. I've, I've met inner city kids that, are, that live in Oakland, for example, and they've never, been, they've never been taken to the ocean. And they're right there in Oakland. The ocean's not that far away, but same thing, that they've, they've never been ferried, literally, to the edge of the, of the continent. And they were right at that continent's edge. If it, I figure if you're at the edge of, near the edge of a continent, you should get to the edge all the way and see whatever is on, that, on the other side of that, of that boundary. But they had never had that experience. And it's just, as, it's just as you're saying, it's just as powerful as if they were in a redwood forest or at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And, and I wonder let, if we could delve into this a little bit more, because, you know, this has been such a, a poignant time for race relations, racial issues in the United States. I mean, I'd argue, you know, when has it not been? I mean, it, it's, you know, it just depends on, I think, what you're paying attention to. But, you know, and I know that your own work, you know, you've needed no special in inspiration for seeking out and bringing to the fore important elements of African-American history in particular in the context of our national parks. And I read, you know, somewhere else, something you said about one of the many sort of harsh legacies of, of slavery was the way it broke that kinship between, you know, African culture and the, and the earth. And so I'm wondering, you know, looking back on this, on this crazy turbulent year, we're about one year from the death of George Floyd, you know, for example, how has this past year you know, impacted you? And how might it, it, do you think it might change your work going forward in terms of, you know, reaching diverse audiences in your interpretation of our parks and how they, how they can, and they should reach you? Well, it's been hard. It's, it's been very difficult because you can't divorce yourself from what you see in the media, uh, in television. You can't separate yourself from what you hear on the radio, on the internet and so forth. So everything that's happening, whether it's in Chicago or some other place, you're hearing about it, you're reading about it. And when it's, when it's your own people, it's when your fellow and sister African-Americans, you know, you say to yourself, they're by, by the grace of God could have been me, you know? And then you're just thinking how their families are reacting to the, the death of a child that had, that there was no real reason for that child to be treated in the manner that they were, or an adult that was killed. That, and there was no real reason for that person to have suffered the fate that they suffered. And it makes you question spiritually why this has happened. It makes it makes you question what is going on in our in our society in our country that this has has happened. And you know, to a great degree, I've found that there is solace in history. You when you see and read what has happened in our past, you know, you know that that phrase of uh, you, not so much that you reap what you sow, but we have planted so many seeds that were unintentional in terms of their their eventual fruition. That if we had known at the time that was the seed we were planting, would we have planted those seeds? I mean, when you look at other human beings and you don't see other human beings, you see them as being somehow less than you. We're not necessarily saying, asking ourselves, how are we, what will we reap from this perception that we're creating of these people? We know that they are people, but we are treating them like beasts of burden. What will we reap from doing that? What are we doing to our hearts and to our spirits? What are we doing to their hearts? to their spirits. It's just being open, clear-eyed about our behavior and how we treat other human beings. We know, all of us, even those folks back then 100 years ago, they know that African-Americans, Negroes, were people. You just know that. When a dog walks up to another dog, it knows it's a dog. <laughs> even if one of them 
even if one of the dogs is a poodle or a chihuahua and the other one is an Irish wolfhound, they still know that's a dog. Human beings are human beings. They're homo sapiens. That's the genus. That's the species. And so no matter how people have covered their eyes and distorted their vision to see less instead of seeing more in terms of gender, in terms of class, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of religion, all of those things are just an obscuration. We need to get that out of our face. Look, listen, and most important of all, feel the humanity of the person that's in front of you, which means going against the grain of our conditioning. And that's a huge part of the problem. We've been conditioned to see what we see, to hear what we hear, and even to feel what we feel. And we need to recondition ourselves. And as I put it, change the lens, the prescription on our glasses to see not what we imagine to be there, but what is actually truly there in front of us. And what is truly there in front of us has always been another human being. Different in terms of gender, different in terms of these, these superficial things, but they're just superficial. They're just superficial. Underneath the skin, we're the same critter. We're homo sapiens. And we have not yet lived up to that name, which is Latin for wise man or wise people. We aren't showing wisdom and we value intelligence more than we value wisdom. And if I was going to be led into the into the desert by two different guides, and I had to pick one guide, and one guide was extremely intelligent, and the other guide was extremely wise, I'd go with the wise one. Because <laughs> even if it didn't work out, even if it wouldn't work out, he says, I can make you feel at peace with the next life. <laughs> you know, I still think wisdom's better than intelligence in terms of hum- the human evolution, or just as good and, and as underrated. That's, those are the sort of thoughts that I've, that I've had during, you know, post-George George, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, living in, in rural America. Um, you know, it's, it's like, okay, we need to just get over this. And this is the thing that I always communicate, that one of the reasons why we're having these experiences, quote unquote, is because we did not go through a period of reconciliation the way that South Africa did at the end of apartheid. They, they basically stopped, got together, looked at each other, says, what have we done? to each other, what must we do in the future to be better than this? How can we be fair? How can we be just? You have to honor the past and, and, the, and the horrific things that have happened in the past before you can, go, before you can move forward. And that, that's why there's phrases like, a riot is the voice of the unheard. Why is it that we haven't been listening when people have been crying out in pain? When a baby cries out in pain and you're a mother or your father, you wake up. In the middle of the night, you hear that he's crying. Is he okay? You run over. You pick him up or pick her up. You you hold them. You nurture them. You make them feel that everything is fine. Why can't we do that for each other? And that's what's lacking, because of our perception that these people are not people. That's how genocide takes place. That's how slavery takes place. Is the first step is the dehumanization of the other, whatever the other is. Yeah, you said something a moment ago about how you found some solace in history. And one thing I've found uh, about national parks is while they visually do a good job of preserving the way the landscape looked before the United States of America existed, when you delve into their history, they do an awfully good job of telling the story of the United States of America as much as uh, our cities and other places that are, you know, more, more peopled and, and more common. And, you know, when I was stationed in the Badlands, um, the South unit of the park seldom visited, you know, out on stronghold table was the site of the ghost dances by the Lakota and other native Americans grappling with this reality that was rapidly descending upon them, overwhelming their, their culture and, and, and their way of life. It's you, you can walk out onto the stronghold table and, and if you have even an inkling of the history, it's, it's hard not to sort of feel it. And so I'm wondering, the Buffalo Soldiers, I think we lost the thread there a little bit. But for me, learning from you on YouTube and, and, the, and the, the Ken Burns you know, documentary about national parks, about your work and the way you've, you've brought the, the story of the Buffalo Soldiers in Western parks, in, in, in Sequoia and in Yosemite to the fore, is is remarkable to me and and was exciting and was inspiring and to hear about sort of the way these common things like the entrance station you know that that actually has its legacy in you know the buffalo soldiers in in western parks 
was was fascinating to me. So you you, you first saw him on on TV as, as a kid in in Detroit. But I'm wondering when you when you got into the Park Service, what did you go seeking uh, for this, or what was kind of the genesis of of how you uncovered this, and and how much you know how much did you know ahead of time versus how much as you just kept learning about it did you start to connect all of the these things all this legacy that they had to the parks well the thing to keep in mind is that you know there's there's always this sense when you're you know you're you're a high school graduate and then you're you're in university and you're 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 basically pushing back the shadows with light and the more shadows you can push back the more that space is filled with light and university is like that place with that launching point where you, you have a, enough room to see you're on the edge of an abyss and you have wings and you can jump out into the air and the air will somehow support you. Or you will innately learn how to use the wings that you've been given, but you've never flown before. And this is the first time you have really embraced the sky and you're scared. So when I arrived in Yellowstone, I had this desire to learn and I was entranced by what I was experiencing, but it was still Wyoming, Montana and Idaho. And there were very few other African-Americans. And I was the only African-American park ranger in Yellowstone at the time that I served there. But at the same time, I I eventually learned that African-American soldiers had served there, not serving in the capacity of stewardship of Yellowstone, but the the 25th Infantry Bicycle Corps rode testing the bicycle as the replacement for the horse. They rode from Fort Missoula, Montana, to St. Louis, Missouri, and they rode and they drove. They rode their bikes through Yellowstone. There's photographs of them at the Minerva, at the terraces in Mammoth Hot Springs, right beside their bicycles. And I remember thinking, "Oh, so black people were the first mountain bikers because <laughs> they were testing the bicycle." I mean, if I could make a film besides my book, but if I could make a film, I would make a film about that bicycle journey with Lieutenant James Moss and the bicycle go, riding a bike for 1,200 miles. And, and think of it this way. Think of Ken Burns' uh, film, Horatio's Drive, the first transcontinental road trip. That was around, that was 19-something or other. So imagine on a, being on a bicycle in the 1880s and going the, over 1,000 miles. I mean, they had, to have a, they had to have a soldier with them whose job it was to repair the bikes. Yeah, because those weren't those fancy graphite, lit, you know, whatever tech that they've got now. I mean... Do you, do you think by the end they thought, no, you know what? The horse is fine. Nothing wrong with a good horse. Or, or, they yeah. probably were thinking, you know, let's, put it, let's put it this way. The bike never did. It did not replace no, the it horse. Did. <laughs> so no, it didn't. It didn't. But, but you know, you, when you're African-American or a person of color and you're in one of these national parks, if you don't necessarily see your story, your life reflected, you search to see if it's there. And so I, I, I searched and found stories of African-American history besides, you know, like the 25th imagery writing through in the 1880s. Um, and it, it, it made me feel more at home in Yellowstone. But, you know, to be honest with you, I felt at home in Yellowstone from the very beginning because of that immersion in Germany in Berchtesgaden National Park before it became a national park. Mountains have always felt like a homecoming to me. But they wouldn't have felt that way had I, just, had I been born and raised completely in Detroit. It was because of those experiences overseas when I was a kid that, that I felt that kinship with Montana. I mean, I'm a black guy from Detroit who feels a sense of home in Montana. And, and of course, I ended up going to University of Michigan for graduate school. They have an MFA program in creative writing, but they also have an MFA in creative writing in Missoula. And if I had the choice between whether being in Montana or Michigan, I probably would have felt the, the siren call of, of Montana stronger than the one in Michigan. But I'm glad I went to Michigan because it's a great school. and I had great experiences there and it was a, it was a wonderful time. But what I'm saying is, is it, it for me and from where I came from as an African-American, as a black Indian, that's my actual ancestry as a black, I'm African, Cherokee, Choctaw, Seminole, and Irish. That's my ancestry. I'm not as much certain about the Choctaw, but my grandmother, my maternal grandmother is from the second largest town in the Choctaw nation in, in Oklahoma territory, born after the turn of the last century. So that gives me that sense of connection to the earth that a lot of that some African Americans may not necessarily have, but many do. That my one of my bloodlines is is Native American. It's not just a Native American. It's specifically Cherokee and Seminole. So when I when people say to me, "How long have your people been here?" I says, "Over as far as I know, thousands of years." <laughs> that changes the conversation completely. Yeah, and I'm curious. I mean, you felt at home. How did you feel others 
perceived you. And, you know, because I, I had the, the pleasure of speaking um, through the National Park Trust with Bob Stanton. I think it was a few months ago now, but it might have been a year ago. I, I can't remember. But um, and hearing about his early days as a park ranger in uh, Grand Teton. And, you know, I've always felt from my own time in the National Park Service that no one has better stories than park rangers. Because while you have the ordinary kind of stock cliched stuff that happens, there's also like once every few days, something just completely crazy that goes on that you have to kind of deal with or, or resolve. But I'm wondering, you felt so at home. Did you feel, I mean, how did you feel others reacted to you? How did that end up shaping your, you know, your experience in, in Yellowstone, later in Yosemite and, and onward? Well, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that we have a tendency to focus more on the negatives and the positives. You can meet a thousand people in one day and 999 are very positive and one is extremely negative. And you have a tendency to we have a tendency as a species to to put too much weight on the one negative person. So I worked at the West Entrance Ranger Station, the busiest entrance station at the Yellowstone National Park, right outside of the town of West Yellowstone. And I, I did that in 1987 and 1988. So during the fires, I was at the entrance station. So I was collecting money from people who were about to literally enter a, a, a park that was on fire in every sense of the word. And uh, it was an amazing experience that, that summer, the summer of 1988. And for many people, I was the first African-American ranger that they had ever seen. And, and not everyone said that, but you could see it in their eyes. And, and so one of the challenges of being a black ranger at that time was the expectations often for, for many Euro-Americans Euro seemed to be relatively low. Like they, they didn't expect you to know anything. I mean, that's, that's one of the insidious, insidious ways that race can work itself out is in low expectations. You know, but, but my feeling was is that, well, I don't have far, very far to climb. If you, you have such low expectations, I can just blow your socks off with, how about this, you know? But, um, but, my, but it was pressure. Because I felt that I, I didn't have the anonymity of a Euro-American ranger. If I said something completely inane or stupid or however you want to put it, um, the, the visitor could show up a, in another part of the park and say, this ranger said this. Is that true? And the, the, the new ranger would say, no, that's absolutely, I'm, I can't believe that, per, that ranger said that. That's, that's insane. Who said that? Well, I didn't get his name. Then the response is, well, if you don't have his name, I can't help you. But then in my case, the response would be, oh, we didn't get his name, but it was a black guy. Oh, Shelton. That's what the other ranger would say, because they all knew there was a black ranger working at the West Gate, and it was me. So I didn't have the luxury, if you will, of, of making a mistake. If I, it's like that's the problem with race. If you, do, if you, if you answer something correctly, you're, you have the correct answer in, in spite of your ethnicity. If you answer it incorrectly, you have the incorrect answer because of your ethnicity, but it's always in the equation. Is race is always there, and that's what's uh, that's what's sick about it is, is how it works its way into things. So, but don't get me wrong here. Yellowstone was an amazing. It was an amazing experience, and I, I had a, a gut feeling before I got on the Greyhound bus en route to Yellowstone that uh, you know, like what, what uh, Judy Garland said, and when she got to Oz, uh, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. I mean, I, I knew I was not gonna be in Detroit. I knew that fully well, because I had those lingering memories of being in Bavaria. But to be honest, it was more than I was expecting. It, was, it wasn't the introduction to a park, it was an introduction to the world itself. And I had a, a visitor from Germany who said that exact same thing. I was standing there talking to him with a map, showing him how far it was to the various locations in the park. This is how far to Lake, Yellowstone Lake. This is how far it is to get to Livingston. This is how far it is to get to Jackson, Wyoming. And he just, his eyes got bigger and bigger. And he was from Europe. And he said, you, you call this a park? This is a country. And Yellowstone is the size of some countries in Europe. It, it is a huge area. And so it felt like it was another world. It, it wasn't an imagined world. It felt like a real new world. I mean. When Lewis Carroll first heard about Yellowstone, I mean, that's where the whole notion of a wonderland came from. Yellowstone is a wonderland. I mean, when you try to describe thermal areas and geysers, which is an Icelandic word for what to erupt or to gush, to people who've never seen a geyser, they wouldn't believe it. And the, the mountain man, John Coulter, talked about the, a mountain full of, that was just solid glass and it worked as a telescope. And you could see a deer that you thought was 40 feet away. It's miles away. And, and yet, that was an exaggeration. He was a mountain man, and they're known for <laughs> exaggerating. But at the same time, there is, a, there, there is an area called Obsidian Cliff between Mammoth Hot Springs 
and, and Madison. And it's volcanic glass. It's obsidian, which is volcanic glass. So it was a fabrication based on a reality. And that's what's amazing about Yellowstone. If you, if you talk about it to people who've never been there, it sounds fanciful. But to people who've been there, who visited, it's, I put it this way, parks are places where the extraordinary is ordinary. Yeah, now that's beautiful. And, um, you know, the, the, the jeopardy that you talked about, about being, you know, the, you know, the African-American ranger, the only one. So, you know, it can't, couldn't be anybody else. is something that really strikes me because, you know, I remember my first summer and the Badlands, we had a guy who was a recent retiree who looked like the very model of a modern major general. I mean, he just looked like a park ranger, big guy, big belly, you know, he wore the, the Stetson, you know, just beautifully and knew almost nothing about the park though. I mean, it really was like stunning how, he, oh yeah. I mean, he used to make traffic stops, even though, you know, he wasn't protection, he was interp, but he would still pull people over if he didn't like the way they were driving. And, um, and I remember one time standing next to him and I was just a volunteer. So I had like a semblance of a uniform, but I got to take, do visitor programs just like everybody else. You know, it was a small, small team. And I remember someone asked him about where the, the Badlands formations came from, you know, which is, if you know the geology, it's just a few hundred thousand years. You know, it, it's not, it, it's relatively new and it's eroding, you know, rapidly. And I remember he paused and you see him lick his lips and he goes, well, that is a good question. Have you ever heard of Pangea? And I'm like, whoa, I don't think you need to go all the way back to Pangea to talk about the Badlands. I mean, that's a that's a, a little too far back. And I, I was thinking about that while you were sharing your experience because, you know, he guys like that could just kind of run wild and, you know, meant well. I mean, was a very nice guy. I'm not trying to pick on anybody or anything like that. But um, but, you know, there was not, though, that kind of you know, jeopardy or, or risk for him. I mean, if he misinformed someone, I think it would be just probably shrugged off by, by most everybody. I, I you know, I, I mean, I remember being, I was 20 years old. I was nervous as heck trying to do all that, but I, I really, you know, Shelton can't imagine having added to that, you know, that, that conspicuousness you must've felt. And maybe that difference in perception that really, you know, added to kind of the intensity of what you were doing. So I really, I tip my hat to you because that, you know, that's a, that's a much tougher climb than I think what a lot of people have to do in, in going through the park service and, uh, you know, really a credit, I think that you, you navigated that so, so beautifully. Well, part of it, the reason is that I'm still navigating it. I mean, the irony of all of this is that it, it still happens. I mean, there's that experience that I just described 33 years ago at the West entrance in Yellowstone, but every year, if I have to cover a shift, uh, at the visitor center, if I'm in the visitor center, I've had people who basically I give them the information and they go to another ranger and ask the exact same question because they think that I might not have, may not have given them the correct information. So they're already discounting what I've said simply because my perception was of the color of my skin. They may have never seen or encountered an African-American ranger before. And so I can't tell you the, the times that I've heard, are, are you new here? Or can I talk to the other guy? I mean, people are really open about, I'm thinking, well, you're open, very open about being racist, bigoted, prejudiced, and all of the above. So a, a huge part of the problem is that people, they see what they see, and they form a conclusion or a perception based on what they see. And if they've not encountered very many African-Americans wearing a Ranger uniform in the national parks, then whatever prejudice or prejudgment that they've been exposed to as a child, it just sort of comes out, it works its way out. And so their expectations are less. And so it, in general, what, what, I, what I do is just, I just answer the question as succinctly as possible and as clearly as possible. And if I don't know the answer, I don't make something up because I, I don't have the luxury of doing that. I have to give them the, the best answer possible. So I just say, this is the answer, or this is how you can find out, or where you can find out the answer. Because it's usually a, a question that I've heard before. It's very rare for me to get be posed a question that I haven't heard before after 33 years. I, you know, usually, I can literally say I've heard it all you know, to a great degree. Um, but I want to give them the best answer. And I think by doing so and being open and honest with them, um, they're all happy because if they don't get the answer, they know where to find it because I give them that information. There's a research library right next door to the visitor center. There's a book that 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 houses the answer to their question 40, 30 feet away from them, you know. Um, but 
but in general, I tend to know the answer. And when I don't, I know where they can find it. And that's all, that's all that's required. Yeah. You know, the question I would get the most when I was standing in front of a sign that said visitor center was where's the visitor center. That was, that was always the most common question, but, um, but Sheldon, let me, let me ask you on the flip side, when there's a, you know, a young, you know, African-American kid comes to the park, sees an African-American park ranger. I imagine that, well, first of all, I'll just say, I mean, I can't begin to imagine the, the, the challenges in dealing with the, with everyone else, but to kids, you know, uh, Latino, Latina, Asian, African-American, you name it, that they see you and that must be such a moment and such an opportunity to sort of envision something that might've been maybe unexpected or, um, might be, you know, who knows how many kids, for example, have been inspired to follow in your footsteps just from having seen you at a park, even short of, of talking to you. I mean, do you feel that that's, that's true on the, on the, on the flip side? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've encountered both, but, um, but what's most meaningful is when I, when I meet people who I did speak to before, and then they tell me that they became a ranger because of an, uh, basically it was a, either a conversation with me or they listened to what I said in the Ken Burns film, you know, which is now over 10 years ago. And that put them on that path to be, to being a, a federal servant, to work for the forest service or the BLM or the park or the park service. And I've had those encounters. I've had encounters with, remember with a young woman, she was a young mom and uh, she went, she ignored the other Rangers because she wanted me to swear her kid in. And I couldn't figure out why me. And I thought well, maybe because of Oprah or the Ken Burns film. And it wasn't that at all. It, what it was, was that years earlier, I was a Ranger in Great Basin National Park. I used to conduct Lehman, tours of Lehman Cave. And she was a little girl on my cave tour. And she remembered me because I played my, I was, a, you know, I said I was a classical, classically trained musician. So I played my clarinet in the entrance tunnel to Lehman Cave. And when you're in an underground world, you remember. But when you're in an underground world and someone plays music for you, that's especially memorable. And she remembered that. She remembered me playing the clarinet and she never forgot that experience. And so she wanted me to swear in her kid. So I had sworn her in as a junior ranger. And then 20 years later, I swore in her, her daughter as a junior ranger. You know, so it's, it's, it's things like that that stay with you and offset the negative stuff. There's always going to be negative stuff, but the positives, the light always offsets the darkness. And so I'm, I'm a child of the light and I don't want to dwell in the shadows of, of, of that darkness, which is racism. And when you, when you're in that light, that light is in you and you see people in a different way. You, and it's, it's easier to sleep at night. It's easier to wake up with a smile on your face. Yeah. You know, that, um, that's a, at a, philosophical level that's a a major inspiration behind look far conservation and its work you know, our motto is you know look far and light the way and the idea is is to focus as much on examples of things going well of success stories there are um there's a lot out there about the environment about conservation about the climate that that's negative and it's important to be up to speed i think on those things but uh, it it's also, I think, important to have examples, you know, have those little uh, little lights that you can follow along of things going well, of success stories. And maybe they're not at huge scale, but I don't think scale matters when you've seen people accomplish things against extraordinary odds. And um, if you pay close enough attention to those things, you know, that that can be what can then produce and inspire, you know, more success elsewhere. So maybe, Maybe none of it happens at one single place at some huge scale, but it's happening thousands or hundreds of thousands of times at small scales, all inspired by, you know, your example, Shelton, or, um, you know, some other projects and people we've, we've, we've had on here. And that, that's been a big part of our, our focus in having this podcast. You know, it's been to learn and to share and to share, it's to share positive examples as a way to, to bring that to other people. Well, I kind of I kind of look at it this way when when we look at words and again, you know, my background's music and poetry. And so when you look at inspiration, it's the word inspiration literally means the breathing in of spirit. Aspire is moving towards spirit, conspire, moving with spirit. 
you know, but the key component is spirit and understanding that there's a, there's a part of us that is transitory. There's a part of us that is eternal. And whether you call it the spirit, whether you call it the soul, there's just some, we just know there's something else beyond what we see, what we hear, what we feel, and what we are what we are touched by. And recognizing that truth makes it easier to deal with where we are right now. And so what I'm saying is is that I, I've met you I've met a lot of people over the last few months, uh, last couple of years that have been very despondent about everything that's been going on. And you know, remember that phrase, "This too shall pass." I mean, it's just that it's the law. It's the law of the universe. The, the only constant, what Heraclitus said, the only constant is change. So no matter how bad things are, it's going to change. No matter how good things are, it's going to change. There's, change is always going to be that one constant that's there. But if we all are working together for a positive change, it's a much more likely outcome that what we're going to receive at the end is that positive light. And light is only positive. Darkness is, is darkness is not a negative because it's still filled with light and those are the stars and we they guide us and think about the underground railroad and harriet tubman following the north star to freedom you know find a find i always say young people find the star that will lead you to the place that you need to be to become the person that you were meant to be and and that's better than quote unquote ambition to find your own purpose to find why you're here on this world why you're here on this earth and everyone has that but they just have to listen to themselves to hear that voice speak to them Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I. <laughs> well, I'm glad we're recording this because uh, I would have been furiously trying to write that down. <laughs> and you know, that's such a uh, such a an important message, I think, particularly these days. Because you're right, there is a lot of. I mean, it's hard. You know, you feel like you turn around and you're just you encounter something that, um, you know, is almost beyond the pale of what you might imagine, mm-hmm. and yet here it is, and it's happening, and. It seems to persist, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's more important than ever to to emphasize what's, you know, what's going well and, and what what can go go well in, in well, the future. Well, think, think of it this um, way: what, how different would our mindset, our our attitudes be if the media only printed good news? I'm just thinking: if if you woke up and said this person did something nice for this person, or this person said something kind, or or this happened, and it was all positive you would have a different perception. But the, to, to a great degree, a lot of the media seems to be driven by negatives, negativity. And there's, but yet in our lives, I'm certain in your life, just in your own circle, you've encountered bo- both negative things, you've encountered positive things, but in general, it might be more positive than negative, but that's not what you receive in terms of a signal when you're engaging or being engaged with the media. I mean, I still fundamentally believe that most people are good people. They may be wrong or erroneous in their beliefs sometimes in terms of how they regard other people. But I think that most people, and I, and this is from interacting with tens of thousands of people or hundreds of over, over 30 years, most people, they're in Yosemite to be enlightened. They are there to, to put their burdens by the side of the river, to rest, to recuperate. And that what that means is that they're all the same in that regard. They're, they're all human beings. They're all part of the same family. We work, we toil, we get tired, we want to rest. And p- places like Yosemite are places where that people can rest the body, rest the spirit and the mind and the light within them. You know, what I love about too, the podcast is how we can we can go anywhere we want. Um, and I love that we've, we've delved so deeply in this. I almost don't want to shift, but there were a few other little things I wanted to try and touch on before we um, before we wrapped up, and you know one of them, Shelton, is pretty prosaic, but really just curious. So you know you like you said you know you studied literature, poetry, music. You were in the Peace Corps in uh, Liberia. What got you to the National Park Service? How did that start? Well, it was a, it was really a you heard the, have you ever heard the phrase a lark of a summer job? I was in graduate school majoring in unemployment, according to my dad. And, uh, and he was right, um, but I was really having fun. And I was looking for something interesting to do that summer. Uh, and everything that I was planning that summer didn't work out. But on a lark, one of my, one of my roommates had a, a, an application that was blank to work for TW Services, the old concessionaire in Yellowstone National Park. And I remember what he said. He said, I said, I said Yellowstone. He says, yeah. He said, how many African-Americans did you know of have written about national parks or wilderness? I said, I can't think of any. 
he said, well, you could be the first. And, and that's one thing he pointed out that to make your name in the literary world, you either write about something that no one else has written about that's important, or you do, or you do that writing and you do it really well. And so I thought it's all about experience. And think about all the writers who literally hoofed it, got on the road, got on a boat, got on a ship, all the artists in general, Gauguin, abandoning his family to, you know, to go to Tahiti. I mean, I wouldn't abandon my family, but, but, and I didn't have a family back then. So there was no one to abandon. I mean, in terms of my own family. So the point is, is that uh, it struck a chord with me from growing up with all those Westerns and going out to yellow, going out to Yellowstone. So I took that job as a dishwasher at the old faithful Inn. And if I had not taken that job, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation right now. If I hadn't taken that 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 summer job, I wouldn't have spoken to President Obama in the White House about something he heard me say in a film that I was in that he was watching at the White House. I mean, if I had even said that 15 years to 20 years ago, one day this Buffalo Soldier story is going to be so known that there'll be a black president and I'll be there at the White House Theater, and he'll be asking me questions about Yellowstone. I mean, that would have been if people would have thought there's no, there's not going to be a black president in your lifetime. But it happened. We never know what the what's in the future. We never know what's around the corner. We never know what's around the bend. We don't even know what's going to happen when the sun rises the next day, or even if the sun will rise. It will rise, but we may not be there to witness it. And I'm wondering visiting a park these days any sort of top shelf tips that uh, you don't give out to just anybody our, our listenership's pretty small so you know it won't it won't it won't go around the world uh, all that quickly but any tips or tricks for folks this summer that might be uh trying to go out and see a park well the first thing i, I wouldn't just go cold I would contact the park either i would look at their website for the park every national park unit has its own website I would look at that website and then I would call. There's usually an opportunity there to speak to a ranger that will give you information about the park. You can, I, would ask, I would ask for an information packet to be sent or mailed out to you. And then once you've read it, if you have questions, then I would wait for the option, like in Yosemite, you can wait for the option to actually speak to a ranger. But I would not show up at a national park cold. I would show up as, as aware as possible of what's going on in that park. Uh, Yosemite has a daily report. There's ways where you can get access to the daily report, uh, but you don't, I think that's too much detail. But what I'm saying is, is that find out as much about the park before you even get in the car <laughs> and you're en route to it. Because there could be a big construction project going on and you, there could be hour long delays. Well, if you know that ahead of time, you're prepared for it. But if you don't know it ahead of time, you could arrive at four and your camp, the campground office closes at five and then that's it, you know, be as informed as possible before you ever get in the car and make your way to that park and just see what the, the rangers there, what the people there, the staff there are recommending, what campgrounds are open, what campgrounds are closed, how to get a campground reservation, uh, when, what time does a visitor center open, what time does it close, you know, how many visitor centers are there in the park, you know, just that basic stuff is incredibly helpful once you're already there because you'll know about a closure ahead of time. You'll know about a campground not open yet for the season because they had a particularly harsh winter. I mean, all those things can make the trip much easier by just a little bit of uh, thinking ahead of time, preparing ahead of time. Well, Sheldon, we we try and wind down each episode by asking uh, our guests the same same three questions as a way to kind of have a common reference point, you know, across all the discussions. And so I thought we could we could kind of shift into that. And these are pretty simple, straightforward questions. And although possible to answer quite broadly, I always encourage folks to think about them in the context of, you know, your own immediate work and views and, and whatnot. And the first question is, what gives you hope? Well, what gives me hope is uh, my son, who's a firefighter for Cal Fire, because he's the future. What gives me hope is whenever I interact with young people in Yosemite, because they will see a world and an America that I feel will be an improvement over the one that I've inherited. There's nothing to me more inspiring than the laughter of a child or children off in the distance because it's there's nothing more hopeful than that. I, I think that uh, we, we need to do a better job of looking at ourselves, looking at our own history. I think that's extremely important to recognize that bias exists even in academia, even though they work against it. It is human to have bias. But it is also human to work against that bias and to remove that those filters that keep us from seeing 
the things that we need to see in this world, in, in each other and in ourselves. Um, I think that that's, that's what immediately comes to mind when you, you now that you've asked that question. Uh, that's what that's what I'm thinking. It's not even so much something that I think should be thought. It's something that I, that I feel should be felt. I think we think too much and we don't feel enough. And I think that's part of our problem. We think we know what we don't know and we don't feel the truth, which is right in front of us. The second question is if you could go 10 years into the future and look around, what's something good that you'd like to see? People care more about other people than just about themselves. I think people do care about other people, but you don't you don't hear it as much relate in the in the media and i think that that's what i'm saying i think the media should do a better job of the good things that people are doing for each other because people are doing good things for each other it's more medicinal when we hear stories of people helping other people those stories brings us together we're we're one big tribe we're one we're one species race is not a biological term it is not a scientific term it is a cultural term and we forget that there are no races. There's just homo sapiens. And we need to live up to that name and truly be wise people as opposed to people who prefer a comfortable lie as opposed to an uncomfortable truth. I feel like while it might be too much wishful thinking to think we could drive some of the bias and the ridiculousness out of what passes for news in, in media and social media, just putting some good news above the fold on the front page every now and then might... Might not be a bad start, you know? I mean, it's not too much to ask. Just one story about something good uh, up there mixed in with everything else. And then the last question is, how can people help? The, the, the best way people can help is just recognizing that they can help, that they're not powerless. That is, that is the most insidious thing that, that, that people feel like, what can I do? What can I do? You can do a lot to make things better. We all can do a lot to make things better. I mean... We focus so much on individuals that are astonishing, like Martin Luther King, but we forget that, that all of us have that same sentiment, that same chord that's, that's thrumming within us as well. There's that sympathetic vibration that we all pick up on. It's just that not all of us act on it. So when we, when we feel that need or that desire to help and do something right and do something good, act on it, do it. And you'll find that other people will appreciate it and they'll even help. You know, I mean, it's like, what do you need for a movement to change the world? A group of people <laughs> who are like-minded, who are all upset that things are the way that they are. And, and it's like, that. I think I just misquoted, who was that person? It's a, a group of small people are, is the only thing that has changed the world. And that's what I like saying to young people. If you by yourself try to make that change, it won't happen. But if you can find other like-minded and like-spirited people who feel the same way, then you can accomplish anything. I think your point about as much as we need these famous people whose deeds you know, echo through history, you shouldn't wait to become famous or be considered great to do good things or to let that be a barrier. There's a line by uh, George Eliot in Middlemarch that goes something to the effect of, uh, you know, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things aren't as bad as they could be is owed to people who lived, you know, a hidden life and rest in an unvisited tomb. And yet a lot of good things, you know, are, are, are from those people. And so I, I think you're I think you're right. Well, it's also just that, that sense of taking care of others, having goodwill towards others, you know, just just doing what is right, doing the right thing. Do the right thing, as Spike, you know, as Spike Lee put it. You know, that's just, it sounds simple, but there's a lot of power to that. You know, like you're just asking yourself, is this the right thing to do, or is this the wrong thing to do? And and asking that that basic moral question and answering it, and and holding on to that part that is illuminating, that, that provides light. That that that's where we should all go. If we all follow that, there's no slavery, there's no genocide. You know, there's just people working together. And that's what we need. We need all of us to be working together. And, and, and as far as the attitudes, work with a psychologist, <laughs> work with a therapist, because we're all homo sapiens. We're, we're one big family, but we need to start treating ourselves like a loving family treats itself, that we care about each other. But as long as it's us versus them, that's discord, that's disharmonious, and that's destructive.
I'd rather be constructive, harmonious, and have light. That's a brilliant way, Shelton, to end what's been really a beautiful conversation with you. I'm very grateful that you could come on and make time for us. And I'm hopeful that some point down the road, if I can ever get my rear end out to Yosemite, uh, I'd love to catch up again and, uh, you know, sometime and uh, continue this discussion uh, whenever that may be. I think that that would be fun. And I know just the place, El Capitan Meadow. That's a great place for discussions. Perfect. You're on. Uh, We'll do it. Thanks again, Shelton. This was awesome. Oh, you're very welcome, Scott. It's my pleasure. Look Far is a U.S. 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to defending wild and wondrous places and working with the people living in and among them. More at lookfar.org.